0: A few weeks ago, I was speaking with my daughter and she asked me, what are you going to talk about this year, mom? And because we have to give three talks, it's, you have to figure out three things to say that have enough substance to be a sermon. And so I told her what I was going to be talking about this morning and she said, why is it you always every year tell some story that's about your personal life? ...about your family. Like, why does that happen every year? Why do you do that every single year, Mom? And I said, well, it's an excellent question. I said, because this time of year is about us thinking at the deepest levels about life. About what we're learning. About where we're challenged as people. How it is that we can really become who we want to become. And then, because we're rabbis, we have this bizarre job... Where everything roiling around on the inside, we put on the outside for thousands of people to hear and comment on. It's a bizarre way to make a living, I have to tell you. But if we rabbis are honest, that's when we're doing our best work, is when we share with you what we're really thinking and what we're really struggling with. I was asked to write a Mother's Day uh, piece for the Jewish Journal because they were doing something different this year. They didn't want just feel-good pieces about Mother's Day. Instead, they wanted pieces about people who had a more complicated and nuanced relationship to that day. One of the editors knows that I'm adopted and so thought that might be a good take on another way of understanding Mother's Day from a different perspective, and the poor man had absolutely no idea what he was getting into when he asked me to write about Mother's Day. It was a very difficult decision to publish that piece and it took me a long time to hit send because I decided to come out about my relationship with my mother. And it was the first time I felt I could do that publicly my relationship with my mother because I felt it was not respectful. But she's had a massive stroke. Last summer she suffered a massive stroke and has been in decline. She's never going to see this or hear this. And given the overwhelming response to that Mother's Day piece that I received, the overwhelming response of people who said thank you for sharing that, I decided that it was my responsibility to share it with you. My mother is someone who suffers from what is known in the medical world as borderline personality disorder. She also suffers... um, ...from narcissism, which often accompanies borderline personality disorder. If you read about these kinds of disorders, both narcissistic and borderline personality, the scientists say in the world of the narcissist, the second part of the ability to have a healthy relationship, which is to value, to hear the thoughts and concerns and feelings of someone else, just isn't present. Narcissists are unable to step outside of themselves to imagine any weight behind someone else's opinion. This renders someone with narcissistic personality disorder socially and emotionally ineffective and affects their ability to maintain relationships. If you've ever known someone who's a borderline personality, you'll know what I'm talking about when I say it is an emotional maelstrom. It's chaos unchained because the swing from you're the greatest thing in the world to you're shameful and disappeared, that swing happens in the blink of an eye and you never know when it's coming. As a child, I couldn't depend on who I was gonna get, good mom or the mom who would blame, shame, and disappear me for days if she didn't like what I said, if she didn't like what I felt, If I pointed out in any way that her behavior was hurtful to me, borderline personality and narcissists turn that back around and make it your fault. That I was selfish. I was arrogant. I thought I was better than everybody else if I stood up for myself at all with her. My parents divorced, as a lot of borderlines do because they can't maintain relationships. My parents divorced when I was eight, which left me with my six-year-old sister to take care of my sister and deal with my mother. Because my mother couldn't maintain relationships, it meant she couldn't maintain a job either. So we grew up poor. I was on scholarship. Uh, My grandparents, my father's parents paid for private Jewish day school. But by the time I was in high school, at Yeshiva High School, I knew I was there on sufferance. I knew I was there on scholarship and the generosity of other people who supported the school so that people like me and my sister could attend. For a child, you think everything is your fault. We know this. Scientists know this. So the confusion, the shame, the self-blame that someone, a child living with someone who's mentally ill, experiences is devastating. You don't trust yourself. You don't trust you have a right to your feelings, to your experience. Nothing is dependable. The rug can be pulled out at any minute. It was a terribly difficult situation for me and my sister, terribly difficult. But fortunately, I attended a Jewish school. So every day that I went to school, there were rabbis, And teachers and mentors, a loving community, and a gorgeous, rich tradition to which I belonged. And I knew somehow, I experienced somehow, that that was bigger than what was happening at home. That was bigger than even my mother. My mother, who was beautiful and smart and charismatic and engaging, who I adored, We cuddled, we tickled, we did all the things moms and daughters do, but it could flip on a dime. That didn't happen at school. That didn't happen in the Jewish community that I was raised in. Things were consistent. Torah was consistent. We could argue about Torah, and it was okay. We were encouraged to debate and to argue, and it was safe to do that at school. I was taught at school that I had an unmitigated relationship with God. That I could access God. God was there for me in prayer, in nature, in study, in learning. I have a much different God concept than I had when I was young, obviously. I don't believe God is a being that thinks and acts and makes decisions anymore. But I still long ...to be in relationship to the loving force that animates all that is in this world. I still long to be connected to the mystery, capital M, at the heart of reality. Formulating that relationship early in my life gave me a very rich inner life. Belonging to this people, generations of this people, gave me a consistency and a sense of safety... Why am I talking about this on Yom Kippur? Because Yom Kippur is about forgiveness. This is not a bus sermon about my situation so much as it is one about forgiveness. Because for too many years, I've heard people talk about forgiveness being what mature spiritual people do in response to being hurt and betrayed and damaged. And I want to say out loud, as a rabbi, as a Jewish authority, that forgiveness is not always the way forward. Our tradition believes in the power of forgiveness. That it is incredibly important. That's what this whole day is about. Asking each other for forgiveness. Granting forgiveness, even when it's really hard for us. Really hard. We're asked to dig deep, to find that heart of compassion, that heart of flesh, and to forgive each other. And it's very hard to ask for forgiveness. But we're encouraged to do that. And it helps that we have one day every year where everyone's going to do it. So it helps you do it. Because it's hard to ask when we're ashamed of our behavior to be forgiven. To humble ourselves like that. To make ourselves vulnerable. What if they say no? So the rabbis say we have to ask three times even. Three times to be forgiven. Forgiven. Because it's hard to forgive. So I believe in the power of forgiveness and its importance in human relationships 100%. But when people aren't sorry, when people don't regret their behavior, when you tell them how hurtful it is and they blame you and make it your fault, I don't believe forgiveness is the answer. I don't believe we have to forgive people who aren't sorry for what they've done. I don't think that's the way forward. There's a woman who writes online about unloved daughters. Her name is Peg Streep. And she says in the kinds of situations we're talking about, forgiveness is not the goal. Healing is the goal. For me and so many others who have suffered betrayal and abuse. This is the truth. Forgiveness is not the goal. I won't ever forgive my mother. I don't need to forgive my mother. She's not sorry. She'll die not sorry. For anything, any pain she caused me or my sister. The goal is healing. How do we heal? What do we do? with that pain, if there's not going to be a rapprochement, if there's not going to be a way of connecting and coming together through forgiveness, how do we move forward? What do we do with that? My whole life is an answer to that question. What do we do with it? Many, many people sitting in here today, your lives also are an answer to what's happened in your own life. My pain my ongoing sorrow at what I'll never have in a mother has been a gift. It allows me to sit with anyone in pain and say, I understand. I may not understand their particular situation or their particular pain, but I can say, honestly, I get it. There are some things that we can't forgive. Moving forward, healing is the goal of these holidays. So I want to say to you, if you can't forgive something, it's okay. Your rabbi says it's okay. You don't have to. What we have to do is figure out how to use whatever's happened to make us more empathetic people. To to raise our children with the knowledge of that pain. Every time I want to say something to my daughter out of frustration... Or anger that I know will hurt her. Every time I bite it back. I pull a suture. To help close that primal wound. Every time. I refrain from doing to her. What was done to me. I reparent myself. Every time I allow her to have her opinions. And God knows she has opinions. It's that donor. Donor. Stubborn, arrogant, opinionated, that donor. Every time I allow her her opinions and allow her to disagree, I reparent the little girl. This is how we heal. We use the material, the spiritual material of our lives to give back. If we need to forgive And it can't be the person who hurts you. I do practice forgiveness a lot. I forgive the universe for not being what I want it to be, for being such a hard place for so many people in this world. I forgive reality for containing so much suffering and ugliness and pain in so many homes and so many places in this world. I work every day at forgiving humanity for doing things so awful to each other, for doing things like what was done to my mother to make her a borderline personality. She suffered greatly, and I know that, and I have deep compassion for that, and I forgive the world for doing that to children. I work every day at accepting the cost of life which is that we will be hurt and we will hurt each other. I work on forgiveness every single day that kind of forgiveness and sometimes I succeed and that's a very good day and sometimes I don't and I'm eaten up with sadness and resentment and grief but that's the work. When we're doing the real work, that's the work. Anne Lamott in her new book, Hallelujah Anyway, says mercy, grace, forgiveness, and compassion are synonyms. And the approaches we might consider taking when facing a great big mess, especially the great big mess of ourselves, our arrogance, greed, poverty, disease, prejudice, It includes everything out there that just makes us sick and makes us want to turn away. The idea of accepting life as it presents itself and doing goodness anyway. The belief that love and caring are marbled into the worst life has to offer. These High Holy Days are about all of us being able to acknowledge the ways we have failed each other and ourselves That gives me great, great hope that so many of you choose to come back today. You know you're going to be hungry. You know you're going to be cranky. You know it's going to be long. You know you're going to be on your feet for a really long time. And you come back anyway because you get it that this work that we do at this season is critical to making us and our community and the world a better place. When we take seriously the work of tshuva, of return, of coming back to the soft, vulnerable hearts, when we show up, when all of you show up and do that, it makes me so hopeful. And when we do it, we evidence to everyone around us and to our young people that love and caring are marbled into the worst life has to offer. One of the prayers that we offer is Avinu Malkenu, our father, our king. It's not exactly the metaphor many of us would choose. But it's okay, because it's a metaphor. It's supposed to be a metaphor. The rabbis did not believe there's a man sitting in the sky with a crown. Avinu Malkenu. He's about touching That little person still in there, that child, that vulnerable, hopeful, innocent, kind child. That part of us that longs to be in relationship to a strong, nurturing, loving parent. We all long for that. Every one of us, no matter how old we get, longs to be seen and known and cherished for our uniqueness, for who we are. The words, the liturgy, is there to move us to those kinds of places, allowing ourselves to long, allowing ourselves to yearn for connection to something bigger, something hopeful, something that fills us with the possibility of becoming, that fills us with a sense of gratitude and connection to this miraculous life that we're given. In her book, Anne Lamott quotes an African Christian catechism which says that God created us because God thought we would like it. And she writes, we would like it? Yes, of course, we like the friendly, warm, or breathtaking parts of life. But it's so hard for almost everyone here, the whole world over, let alone my own beloveds. God thought we would like puberty, warfare, and snakes? I could go on and on. Senescence, global warming, Parkinson's, spiders? Yes. Because in the words of Candy Staton's great gospel song, Hallelujah anyway. Hallelujah. That in spite of it all, there is love, there is singing, nature, laughing, mercy.